Welcome to Generations of X, the podcast where we discuss the past, present, and future of all things X-Men. I'm your co-host, the uncanny Dayspring. And I am your other co-host, the adjectiveless Flinkman. And folks, strap in because we have a giant-sized Ten of Swords episode <laughs> for you today. Yeah, that's right. We have the last six chapters of the Ten of Swords crossover to cover today. We have uh, a brand new interview with Iceman writer Cena Grace that we wanted to get out first. So we saved it all up for this week. Dayspring, are you, are you looking forward to this? <laughs> oh boy. It's, uh, you know what? It, so much happens and at the same time nothing happens so <laughs> right right like recapping all of these issues with you and getting my thoughts together for all of them has uh made me realize a lot more happened than i thought so we'll save those final thoughts for for once we've we've gotten into the issues um but first let's 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 dive right in you want to you want to kick us off so our first issue today is X-Force number 14, which is chapter 17 of the Ten of Swords crossover. Our writers are Ben Percy and Jerry Dugan, art by Joshua Kassara. We open up with Magic and Pogrepog battling it out again, except, oh no, there's a twist. It's unarmed combat again. That's right, no swords. And Pogrepog just straight up swallows magic whole, but don't fret because she busts out of him and it's revealed that Pogrepog is actually an alien squirrel-like thing in alligator pajamas. <laughs> so Krakoa gets a point and that's it for this tournament. Uh, there was no cool display of magic's powers or an awesome fight scene between these two. It was just her busting out of his alligator pajamas and the, the fight ends right there. And so what follows is a montage of the X-Men and the Araco champions competing in various different tournaments that are just as wacky as everything we've seen so far. There's a disco dance-off where my boy Doug wins. There's Magic and Gorgon putting together a puzzle. Uh, Brian is doing an eating contest. Just really wacky, far-out stuff that we never would have expected at the beginning of this crossover. We eventually get to a race between Red Root and Brian, but before the race begins, Saturn 9 taunts Brian saying, Durr, aren't you happy your sister is dead so you can take on the mantle of Captain Britain again? And, and, and Brian's like, leave me alone. <laughs> and, and, and the race begins and Brian loses because shocker, this entire tournament is based off of Saturn 9's whim and she interferes and prohibits Brian from actually running. So Red Root wins, but not before she knocks over a very expensive vase and is encased in a jar as a punishment. Um, Flink, I'm really confused by this because Red Root is still shown in the following issues as still part of the tournament. So I thought the, this was the end for her, but I guess it's not. Who knows? Who knows? Like you said, this is all at Saturnine's whims at this point. So perhaps she just changed her mind off panel. So we get more fighting montages and magic misspells magic by spelling it the, the way she spells her code name. So M-A-G-I-K, not the traditional M-A-G-I-C or the, the Wiccan pagan way, which is M-A-G-I-C-K. And uh, anyways, I'll, I'll save that for the end. Uh, Wolverine loses a staring contest in the mirror because it shows him his past victims and Brian refuses to kill an adorable little kitty. Oh. <laughs> I was waiting for you to do that. Intuitively, I knew to just pause and like wait. And I, I like, am the cat lady. You are the cat lady. Um, and so the entire issue culminates with Storm battling it out with death. And there's not much to say here. The battle goes on for a few pages until Storm declares she's tired of dancing with death and delivers the final blow and wins. So our score at the end of this issue is Arako 17 and Krakoa 6. Blink, what did you what did you think? Well, it was pretty. <laughs> I uh, I really liked looking at it. You know, the art was gorgeous, but you know, 
I've said it once. I'll say it again. It feels like Saturnine is making this up as she goes along, which kind of gives the impression that the writers are doing the same. I, I don't know. I don't know. I would have loved to have been in the pitch meeting for this issue. It's just so random and all over the place. Uh, sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's super serious. Uh, I, I, I just, I, I don't know. I really don't know what to make of it. It's just that all over the place and confounding. Okay, so I have I have some thoughts here. Look, okay, first of all, first of all, Pogrepog deserved better. He has been the breakout star for the Iraqo champions. Everyone on the internet was obsessed with him. And he turns out to be like this alien squirrel thing in alligator pajamas. And, and we don't even see him fight with his sword. We don't see him in magic having this really big, awesome fight. Like, no, come on. Like, it's, uh, I, I don't know how to articulate the fact that it was, shown that these two were going to fight and and we want to see them fight in a big elaborate way and i feel it was the biggest missed opportunity i feel editorial really mismanaged pogger pog here right and the thing that confuses me is that pogger pog is back in his dinosaur slash crocodile pajamas the very next page rolling yeah, I, in the rock rolling competition well, yeah absolutely and and it's the same thing with red root like aren't they disqualified? Aren't they done? In theory, these are disposable characters. Get rid of them, get them off the table. But so, and the other thing that I don't like, I haven't spent much time as a reader with Saturn nine. And I, I, she comes across really petty and, and one beat. And I would just think like, she's got to get better game with Brian. Like, Brian literally betrayed her so his sister that he loved very much his twin sister he loves very much could have the mantle of Captain Britain and she's here taunting him saying aren't you happy she's dead so now you can be Captain Britain and I'm like girl like stop it like if you really want Brian do some manipulating right and unleashing the fury of all things on Brian it just it it's petty it's crazy I don't you know I I am familiar with Saturnine. You know, I how many times I mentioned how much I love Alan Davis era Excalibur. I love it. So I love Saturnine. Every fucking week. I mean, you know, (laughs) once this crossover is over, I I really hope that I'm not referencing Saturnine for a a minute, (laughs) to be honest. Um, But either way, her summoning the Fury is petty. It's out of character. I don't like it. Yeah, she comes off as very unlikable here. It just, it's its so beyond unlikable. It's just a one beat note for the character. I want to see more shades of her. Hickman and, and Teeny Howard write her really well and very flushed out. I've liked what we've seen of her in other, in other spots of the story. But I, I don't know, this issue for me, very skippable. It, it's just filler. Nothing of substance happens. The X-Men just do wacky tournaments and Saturnine is a raging lunatic that's it yeah move on to our next issue we are on hellions number six which is chapter 18 of the tennis swords crossover this issue is written by zeb wells with art by carmen carnetto and colors by david curiel y'all it has been 12 long chapters since the hellions last participated in this crossover so for the first time in this entire process i feel like i need to recap the recap page in an effort to beat the game before it ever begins mr sinister and his team of hellions have set out to steal the 10 swords of araco and force a forfeit so basically the last time we seen this crew was when sinister lost his cape to king jamie while seeking passage into other world and honestly That remains one of the better moments of this entire crossover. The recap page tells us it's a long journey between the realms. And yeah, clearly that's true because we as readers already know that so much has happened in 12 issues that render this entire exercise completely irrelevant. But also it's reflected in the art as our team of misfits emerges through the Dryador gate looking beaten down and exhausted, especially my boy Havoc who has lost a fucking eye. Cool. Totally cool. More maiming of Havoc's pretty face. Didn't get enough of that from Rick Remender. So it wouldn't be a week in in this podcast if you weren't ragging on Remender. You know, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be. I have I have my own X tropes at this point. So anyway, they run into another brand new character to add to the list of brand new characters I probably won't remember from this crossover, who lets the gang know that their journey to retrieve the Ten Swords of Araco has all been for nothing because, of course, the tournament has already started. But in news that honestly shouldn't shock anyone, 
Sinister wasn't actually here for the swords, no. This has all just been a cover so that he could come to Araco and collect its true treasure, the genes of its mutants. Mutants like the five additional new characters that the one new character that we've only just met has now summoned, and oh boy, they've got a name, Locust Vile, and we've got a data dump page about them. So, the main guy is named Tarn the Uncaring, aka the Great Genomic Mage, and he seems like a pretty fucked up dude. His power is to alter mutants on a genetic level, and he brings these Aminthian mutants under his godlike control to mutilate them. His locus vile are Mother Rapture, Hex Butcher, Sick Bird, Mudgear the Recanter, and Amino Fetus. Tarn has touched them all, and they've been remade in his image, which, of course, makes Mr. Sinister literally get hearts in his eyes because remaking mutants in his image is like his whole entire thing. So... Sinister then immediately unleashes dozens of genetic collection drones to get samples of their blood, which is something Tarn the Uncaring warned him not to do just seconds earlier. So now Tarn is like super pissed and tells his vial to literally make murder. Yeesh. Okay, so for all the battles this crossover has promised, we haven't actually seen that many, but we definitely get one here. It is eventful to say the least. Right off the bat, Mudgear the Recanter murders Nanny, which, if you'll remember, this podcast predicted would happen in our last Hellions review. Nanny's hard-boiled remains on horseback are enough to scare the shit out of Empath, who promptly relinquishes the control he's had over Grey Crow for this journey and takes off toward the nearest gate out of there. Quanin seems to agree with his logic and orders the Hellions to fall the fuck back. The Vile clearly have other plans, as in rapid succession. Havoc's hands are sliced off by Hex Butcher. Grey Crow gets repeatedly stabbed by Sick Bird's spine spikes. Orphan Maker's arms are ripped off by Amino Fetus, and Quanin uses her alpha dominance over poor Wild Child to use him as bait while the rest of the team escapes. Mm. And he is then seemingly killed for his loyalty. Real cool. Real cool. Betsy would never. Anyway. Tarn also tears Mr. Sinister apart, but the way in which it's done leaves it kind of ambiguous as to whether or not this actually kills him. My guess is probably yes, but who knows? Anyway, Quanin, Havoc, and Greycrow have reached the Avalon Gate and must continue to hurry if they are to get poor mutilated Alex to the Healing Gardens in time. Some otherworldly and guards attempt to stop them, but never fear, Empath is here, and he quickly forces the guards to grant them passage. Greycrow thanks him for his efforts with a quick shank to the gut. Frankly, I get where Grey Crow was coming from here. I mean, who knows how long Empath had actually been manipulating him, and at least he was nice enough to shank him close enough to the Krakoan gate that Empath should be able to crawl through it and die without worry of getting scrambled in Otherworld. So, with that, we are finally back in Krakoa, and it looks like everyone is going to be just fine. Yeah. Oh, wait, no. Why is there all this black smoke? Why, it's only the real Mr. Sinister waiting to stab Quanin, shoot Havoc, and use some sort of secret tech embedded in Grey Crow to disintegrate him from the inside out. Friendly reminder, I say real Sinister because 12 issues of Crossover ago, we saw Sinister Prime interacting with the clone Sinister and were left wondering which of the two actually went on the Otherworld journey. Mystery solved, I guess. Anyway, Empath does indeed manage to crawl through the Krakoan Gate where he promptly drops dead after Sinister inquires about his missing cape. And with that, Sinister bloodies himself up and begins to cry for help as if he himself didn't just kill all of his precious Hellions. And that is where the issue ends. I don't know how I feel about this issue. I mean, I think my large, like my larger issue or my, my qualms with this issue was what was the purpose of the story? Uh, other than it had to be shoehorned into, you know, Ten of Swords. Because a couple issues ago, we already saw the Araco mutants getting their swords. So... I mean, we didn't see any interference from the Hellions, not even in, in like the background or even an attempt to. So I don't understand why this book existed in the first place. I also like, it makes the council look stupid that Xavier and Magneto wouldn't anticipate a betrayal from Sinister because we, the readers knew something was, another shoe was gonna drop. We're not shocked that Sinister had ulterior motives. It's not, a, it, it's not bad, it, it, it just, what is it doing here? What is, what it, is do it doing here? I so. <laughs> I thought you were asking what are you yes. doing here? <laughs> um, I yeah. What is it doing here? Why didn't they just tell off their their one off story? Tell one off story. Yeah. What is what is the point of of this book even participating in this crossover? I mean, it's been months since we've thought about the Hellions existing on the margins of this. It, it doesn't serve the main 
plot. It doesn't serve this team. It doesn't serve this book. It doesn't serve to do anything except, like you said, make the Quiet Council look stupid for trusting Sinister, making Havoc look like super incapable because he's lost an eye. He's lost a hand. He's gotten stabbed to the chest. Like he's had a rough time. And I hate to, I'm not trying to make it all about Havoc because, you know, all of them were murdered at the end. But so, I just. So for Empath, I, it, should we take note that half his body was in Otherworld and half was in Krakoa? Do we think that even matters or do we think he just made it and that safe, you know, kind of deal? I mean, I feel like your consciousness exists around your brain. <laughs> I like Zeb Wells. I thought the art was very pretty. I liked Hellions a lot, minus one particular issue prior to this. Mm. So I, 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 Just I'm not I'm not mentioning it because I would hate to sound like a broken record who mentions the same things every episode. I mean, who does that? <laughs> <clears throat> Literally you. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, I don't understand what this is doing here. I don't have a whole lot to say about it other than that. Um, I'll be interested to see where we pick up with uh, Orphan Maker. Uh, he's not with the rest of the team when they arrive back from Otherworld. So did he die there? Is he going to come back scrambled? Uh, ooh, that's a, that's in poor taste. A, a scrambled reference to Orphan Maker when An his his nanny was just <laughs> scrambled in Otherworld. Um, but no, I would be curious to see what they're going to do with both Wild Child and Orphan Maker, and if they died, and uh, what that means for them being resurrected on Krakoa. All right. Uh, so our next issue is Cable number six, which is chapter 19 of the Ten of Swords crossover. Our writer is Jerry Dugan and the art by Phil Noto. So we kick off the issue with Sinister entering the Quiet Council chambers. And man, Quiet Council scenes are seriously the best of Dawn of X. I don't know how you feel about them, Flink, but I love them so much. Yeah, there's always so much shade going around. It's Fantastic. So we pick off where we left off in Hellion. Sinister was late because he needed to stop and get a cape, to which Kitty is like, how can you be getting a cape when mutants are literally dying? And Sinister is literally appalled by Kate's statement, calling out her sordid fashion history, which Emma reluctantly agrees. Uh, Sinister says that Araco is coming, that an invasion is imminent, and they need to close the gates. Xavier says closing the gates is not an option and Krakoa says something. We don't know what without Doug, but Sinister says they're all making a mistake. Back in Otherworld, it's Bay versus Cable and Kid Cable is able to stand his own against Bay, but as he's about to deliver the final blow, he hesitates and Bay knocks him off his feet. Now, as Bay is about to deliver her final blow, Doug interjects saying that Cable is already defeated and Saturnine just agrees saying that there are some defeats that are to the death that involve the spirit. So Kid Cable psychically reaches out to Jean and Cyclops saying he's not his older self and was not ready for the tournament. He also tells them to prepare for an invasion before Saturnine is like, I've tolerated enough of the spine and cuts off their connection. Cyclops falls to the ground saying he can't lose his son again. And Jean kisses him saying, let's go make this right. So next up, Gorgon is battling White Sword of the Ivory Spire. However, the twist is Gorgon must defeat his men before battling a White Sword. And, and he does rather well. I mean, this is literally an awesome fight scene. Um, but here's the other thing. Every time he defeats one of White Sword's men, a point is awarded to Krakoa. So he's racking up the points for Krakoa and that brings the score up for our Merry Mutants. And when it's time for him to fight White Sword, unfortunately, Gorgon is killed, which we also, you all, you also predicted that he would be one of the ones to, to perish. Two for two. So the score is now a tie and each team has 19 points. And the issue ends with the next and final tournament announced, Genesis versus Apocalypse. Dun, dun, dun. So Flink, what did, what did you think of this issue? Uh, well, first of all, I, uh, I want to open with a, a question for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What color are Jean's eyes? My God, they're blue. Why? Phil Noto, 
we Bill, love you, man, but you got to get that together. Why are her eyes blue? It's red hair and green eyes. So easy. I just wanted to troll you and ask that question first. <laughs> so here, here, here are my thoughts. I actually think this was a pretty solid issue. Uh, it was a straight up fight. I wanted to see that. There was a little bit of gore. There was a defeat of the spirit. And what I really liked about this issue was a Gene and Cyclops scene, mostly because I, I'm, I'm enjoying seeing them as a family. And, and it's the kind of family in the, way, in, in the way I'm reading it, where Gene and Cyclops know they've been shitty parents and they're trying to be good parents now. So the, it, it comes across as like, let's go make this right. Let's go get our, we've made our mistakes in the past before. We've been on the sidelines with our kids. Let's be active and let's do something. You know, it still kind of feels like Summer's family wish fulfillment to me. And I don't hate it. I don't hate it. And it's nice to see Scott and Gene actually show each other affection in this issue. Um, It just... think about that. It it, it has yet to feel earned, if that makes sense. No. we're, We're getting the story that, you know, perhaps we've always wanted, but it, it, it doesn't feel earned. This story, these scenes go a long way towards making it feel earned. Like make, seeing him fight for his son uh, makes me really happy. Um, and of course, aside from, you know, the Jean Grey eye color situation, the art is beautiful. Phil Noto is a fave. Um, I, I don't disagree with that. I think the art is beautiful, but there are parts of it that did feel a little rushed. And I think the last page where it's Genesis versus apocalypse it didn't i didn't get that momentum for it it just felt like it just kind of happened and it felt a little rushed that's my only 99 percent of this art is gorgeous everything we've seen of phil noto is gorgeous but that just felt a little rushed to me yeah no i don't disagree i think uh his battle scenes are are not his strength as demonstrated by that final splash page and also of course the the gorgon scenes um are yep, a little, you're absolutely right you're absolutely- are a little more simplistic so but one thing i do have to give him credit for is uh emma versus saturnine uh they are two car- blonde hair blue-eyed women in white um, and he makes them look distinct. He gives them both distinct hairstyles, facial features. He's one of the only artists in this crossover who's really taken the time to distinguish them beyond every other artist, sometimes giving Emma a bob to distinguish her. So uh, I definitely appreciate that. I, th- I, you know, I didn't hate this one. I didn't hate this one. This one was fine. So far as these things go, this one was fine. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It was fine. It set something up. It's the penultimate fight. We, it, it set the stage for something bigger. Again, I just wish that last page would have been a little bit more drawn out and some momentum would have built. And that's my general, at this point, this is my general like qualm with the crossover is with the actual fighting. They've done really great character development and making us look into characters, but the actual momentum for the fight, it just falls flat. They just kind of throw you in there without properly setting up a tournament. Yeah, I don't like I, I don't disagree with that. All right, so shall we move on? Yeah, and uh, this is another uh, Gene and Scott heavy issue, so I'll I'll let you take it. All right, so we have X Men number fifteen, which is chapter twenty of the Ten of Swords crossover. Our writer is Jonathan Hickman, and our artist is Mahmoud Asar. The issue opens up with Scott and Gene, where we left off with them. They've decided to go to other world to save Kid Cable, and they're going to go make a case to the council. And this is it, folks. The fight of the century, Apocalypse versus Genesis. Apocalypse asks if Genesis will remove her mask so he can fight the face hiding behind it. Genesis is like, it's cool, hubby. I just wanted to spare you the pain of looking into my eyes and remembering who is fit for survival and who is not. Like, damn, that is... You know what, Genesis? That is a cold fucking read on your husband. Meanwhile, back at the council, Gene and Cyclops make their case to the council. Cyclops says he's going to get his son, while Gene sounds the alarm that Krakoa is in danger. They want to go through the Avalon Gate and get their people, close it for good, shutting them out of Otherworld. Shaw says that the council, the quiet council of Krakoa was formed as its government for this nation, and they cannot lose any of their members to a righteous madness. 
And, and he puts to vote the motion that if you are a council member, you're part of the Krakoan government and you leave to other world for battle, you lose your seat on the council. So it's put to vote. Xavier, Magneto, Sinister, Exodus, and Shaw all vote in favor of it. And Jean says she's disappointed, but she says it's not going to stop her. So Nightcrawler and Kitty offered to join, but Cyclops and Jean shoot them down, telling Nightcrawler that he is the heart of the X-Men and telling Kitty that if they, they, she can't travel because there are gates. And obviously that's a plot thread that's in Marauders. Emma does offer to go, but Cyclops is like, no, there's too much money on the table. And I thought that was a very endearing scene. I'm glad we got that one-on-one moment with, Jean, oh, excuse me, with Cyclops and Emma. But the council also then puts to vote in favor of closing the gates. And Cyclops then says the council was formed as a government of Krakoa, but the X-Men are its heroes. And Jean and Cyclops leave to do just that, to be X-Men and to be heroes. And they go to other world to save their son. And, and we get a few data pages of the council formation, which I feel like we should have gotten a little earlier <laughs> in this relaunch. Maybe we did and I just missed it. You know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Flink. But it talked about how the X-Men are no more in favor of a balanced perspective. That's why we have spring, winter, summer, and autumn on the council and how the term X-Men has become interchangeable with mutants and, and that's wrong and that wasn't really correct. So the X-Men are no more uh, as far as the council was concerned when they were first establishing Krokoa but now it looks like the X-Men are coming back. So back in Otherworld, Apocalypse slashes Genesis through her stomach, but before she can die, the, the Annihilation Mask calls to her to put it on, and she does. And, and Annihilation takes the stage, and, and true believers, this fight is far from over, and that's where this issue ends. Flink, what did you think? I thought this was good for, for, for Ten of Swords. You know, uh, it felt like more of an X-Men issue than a lot of these have. Um, as you said, we said in the last uh, recap, the Quiet Council scenes uh, are the star of the Dawn of X show. So this is no exception. Um, I, I already appreciated the art uh, here by talking about artists who distinguish Emma and Saturnine by giving uh, Emma a bob. That That is the case here. I don't mind Emma with a bob, but when we just saw her in the last issue with a full head of hair in an updo, uh, I don't like that kind of inconsistency, but I digress getting off in the minutia here. Overall, it was a solid issue. I liked Shaw. I liked Sinister. Uh, Xavier is a dick, as usual. I was about to say Professor Xavier is a jerk. I mean, is why that new to anyone? A, why are you, first of all, first of all, you fucking hypocrite. Like, you just voted. Uh, you were telling Sinister that you didn't want to close the gate. And now you're voting to close the gate after Cyclops and Gene are going to go get your people. And by the way, Gene is an Omega-level mutant. And what was the first thing they said in the House of X crossover was that that is their greatest natural resource. So literally, one of your greatest like natural resources is going to Otherworld and you're voting to close off the gate? No. Like, it's so, it's it's almost like it's, it's, it's at the whim of the writer what these rules are. Yeah, absolutely. It's at the whim of the writer and at the whim of Saturnine. <laughs> but, um, you know, taking this issue for 100%, it's logic. I thought I was glad to see that there is a distinction between what it means to be Krakoan and an X-Man and what it means to be yeah. on the government. Like, that's great. I, I'm 100% in favor of the X-Men being the heroes of Krakoa. Yeah, I, for sure. I think, it's, I, I, I think it's a distinction, like you said, that should have been made earlier because um, it kind of has felt like anyone could be an X-Man now, but now we know that there have been no X-Men this entire time. Well, I would have, yeah, I, I just, I think from a story perspective, it would have meant a lot if they would have said, we are no longer X-Men, we're just Krokoans, and like let that simmer for months. You know what I mean? It would have caused controversy. People would have been talking about it, but then the X-Men come back, you know, like in, in the scene. I thought it was great momentum. I just, I just wasn't prepared. I didn't know that we didn't have X-Men. <laughs> right. Right. And I think you're absolutely right. They could have done this a, a, a whole, you know, the X-Men are no more promotion. And you'd think Marvel would do that. They're prone to, to such no. to such moves. They um, love no more mutants, no more Phoenix, no more X-Men, no more Avengers. They love that phrase. So I don't know why they just wouldn't have pimped out no more X-Men. But I can't um, imagine. 
You know, I thought the, the Gene and Cyclops romance, I really liked it. I, I really, it's, look, it's been like 16 years since we've seen them as a couple. And I, I understand now why they work. I do wish Emma would have gone with them. I wish Emma and they would all three have walked out holding hands. I loved <laughs> I, it. I would have loved that. I mean, that's the thing that like, when we were talking to Cena in our interview, that's live right now, Cena talks about like, you can lean into the metaphor, but when you acknowledge the metaphor and the metaphor is out there, you have more opportunity for greater stories. So if Gene and Scott have an open marriage, put it out there. You know what I mean? I, or, or whatever the case is, you know, with Wolverine and, it's been insinuated with Emma. So even though I like that, that moment with Scott and Emma, I wish we would have gotten more. And, and Emma has really shined in Dawn of X. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, no, she absolutely has. Um, I, I liked Scott and Jean here, but Scott and Jean with a nod to Emma is kind of how I think it should be and how it is handled here. It, it's done well. Um, I don't always want Emma to be the other woman. I, 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 in fact, I don't want Emma to be the other woman in any capacity, but I do want to see her relationship with Cyclops uh, treated with dignity and, and respect and not just written off as a fling. And I think- And just- especially since Scott and Emma existed because Gene from the White Hot Room pushed them together psychically. <laughs> oh my God, did that happen? <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. I agree wholeheartedly with you. I, I think that that's why that relationship works. And- and, and Hickman has been playing with that, you know, like, oh, you know, I'm not the one who borrows things. That's more of a you thing. And, and they kind of laugh about it. I like that. I like that we have two very powerful women who aren't squabbling over a man. They've actually put that behind them. And they're just, it's a clash of personalities, not a clash of a man. Everyone is acting like an adult. Yeah. And it's nice. Well, except for Saturday. Well, except for, obviously, she's making shit up as she goes along. All right, so after two back-to-back recaps from Dayspring, I guess I can go ahead and take over the next one. Can I take a disco nap? You, you can know, take a disco nap. nap. You wait, can take wait, a disco Ashley's nap. doing this entire relaunch a nap? Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, so we're swinging it back to me now for our penultimate chapter of Ten of Swords. This is Excalibur issue 15, a.k.a. chapter 21 in the Ten of Swords crossover that feels like it's never-ending, but it does actually end, I promise. So, <laughs> this issue was written by Teeny Howard with art by Mahmoud Asrar and Stefano Caselli with colors by Sunny Go and Rachel Rosenberg. Yes, folks, the big showdown between Genesis and Apocalypse that was teased at the end of Cable Number 6 more than a full chapter ago is still happening as we open our issue. Marvel said we were going to get a bunch of sword fighting in this crossover, and here it finally is. I guess I kind of expected it to be a series of several sword fights rather than one big long one, but I digress. Promises made, promises kept, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, Genesis has now put on the golden helm of Ameth and gone full annihilation, summoning her horde of Deathbringers and raining chaos on Otherworld. While the X-Men are busy fighting off demons, Apocalypse and his man-tears are being read to filth by annihilation. Storm decides that the only thing worse than man-tears are supervillains monologuing about them, and she distracts Annihilation with a lightning bolt while the rest of the team tries to get Apocalypse to retreat. Checking in on the rest of our Arakoan champions, Poggerpog isn't thrilled by the chaos, and neither is White Sword, who takes his troops and leaves the battle because this is not what he signed up for. We haven't had the opportunity to learn much about White Sword over this crossover, but we have seen that he is a man of honor, so his retreat here makes a lot of sense and I wouldn't be surprised if we saw more of him somewhere down the line. At this point, Bay the Blood Moon also decides she's on the wrong side of this, choosing love over war and running off to snatch up her new husband, Doug Ramsey. Elsewhere, inside the Starlight Citadel, Saturnine and Shogo the Magic Dragon decide it's playtime and start to work on a puzzle made up of red, white, and blue pieces. Hmm. So, then we get a few more pages of extended fight scenes depicting our heroes as desperately outnumbered before Bay finally shows up and promptly whisks Doug away from the action. I think this is also the first time we've seen Bay's mutant power, which turns out to be some sort of Banshee or Black Bolt type destructo scream. Anyway, back inside the Citadel, Saturnine and Shogo are wrapping up their puzzle and what's this? A pastel purple puzzle piece? I can't think of anything relevant that might be red, white, blue, and purple. Hmm. Nothing. Hmm. Nothing. Nothing at all. So... Let's move back to the battlefield where things are not going well for the X-Men. 
Storm calls out Holdfast and Krakoan, to which Apocalypse responds, never surrender, before Jubilee, of all people, charges in with a literal army of otherworld priestesses to try and save the day. Seriously, y'all, this is amazing. We spent all this time building up the Krakoan sword bearers just to have Jubilee be the big hero, and I fucking love this for her. Elsewhere, Doug convinces Bay to turn around by almost telling her that he loves her, and they rejoin the fight. Sadly, none of these reinforcements are enough to turn the tide as the hordes of Amonts start to close in on our heroes. This cliffhanger is not where the issue ends, however, as we jump back to Saturnine one last time as she completes her puzzle. To the surprise of perhaps no one but the Omniversal Majestrix, the completed puzzle is an image of the fallen Captain Britain, Betsy Braddock, signifying that the Captain Britain Corps have been reborn anew in Betsy's image rather than her brother Brian's, much to the obvious dismay of Saturnine. And that's actually where the issue ends as we head into our final chapter. Dayspring, your thought. Um, you know what? I, I liked it a lot more hearing you recap it. And I, for whatever reason, subconsciously, I did know the, the Captain Britain Corps was being remade in Betsy's image. But the fact that you said it out loud to me was like, oh, like it just clicked. So I like that. I like that quite a bit. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a big I, deal. It's a big deal. They don't actually play it yeah. quite as big of a deal as they should, I I don't think. Yeah, like obviously, like I saw that and I digested that, but I I didn't, it didn't, again, it, this goes uh, as a reoccurring theme in our podcast, like hearing you recap it, I enjoyed the issues so much more. Um, the art was really great. I, I like seeing Doug be a bottom and being carried away by Bay. I, I love that reverse gender role. I don't understand the relationship at all. I, it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't get um, why he's into her. I don't get why they're, why either of them are into each other, but. He's so precious. I totally get why she's into him. Yeah, I, I don't understand why, why, why this relationship exists in the first place. So, but you know what? I like that Jubilee, again, you said it, that they've spent like 21 issues building up the Krakoan champions only to have Jubilee save the day. Can you Bravo. imagine Bravo. if you hadn't been reading Excalibur prior to this crossover, you would have no idea really. I mean, we, I guess we did telepathically touch back in with Jubilee in the last issue of Excalibur, but, but, but prior to that Jubilee had had nothing to do with this crossover. And all of a sudden she comes in and le- leading the, the last best hope against the forces, the dark forces of Ameth. I mean, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. Let's not get melodramatic, darling. I mean, she's not their last hope. Okay, no, 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 no. The next issue is the last hope. But for the purpose <laughs> of someone very special. <laughs> okay, <laughs> go back. <laughs> um, no, I agree with you. I, you know what? This was all great momentum building. I, you know what, uh, and and I did not decide when I was reading this issue. I was like, oh, I have to find out what's going to happen in the next issue. Like, I literally just downloaded the next one. But I, in terms of, you know, looking at this issue, I don't think there's much to say. I think you hit it all that we need to talk about, which is the the Captain Britain Corps are, are are back. They're in Betsy's image, and Jubilee saved the day. And you know, we have Bay on our side now, or the Crocoan side now. Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's about it, honestly. That's about it. All right, on to the final chapter of the Ten of Swords crossover, chapter 22, and it's issue one of Ten of Swords, Destructions. Our writers are Teeny Howard and Jonathan Hickman, and our art is by Pepe Larraz. So it opens up with Saturnine at the Starlight Citadel as the Captain Britain Corps are reborn. And Brian is overjoyed and the mutants now have backup. And we see Genesis beheading one of them while others fight the Araco champions. And it's just a really great scene. I mean, Brian, I mean, Pepe really grabbed Brian's like, look like he just looked overjoyed and was just so overwhelmed um genesis is like that's it we have to summon an army go on summoners summon the hell of Araco, and that's exactly what they do um kid cable meanwhile back at the citadel wants to know if they are losing and saturn nine is like everything is as it should be like saturn nine what the frack are you saying but uh, then he makes telepathic contact with Cyclops and he tells his son not to fret. 
because help is on their way. And then Cyclops comes in telepathically to Ileana and it's a cute moment between the captains and he's here like reinforcements are coming. And then from the sky, the sword facility just comes straight down and lands on the Starlight Citadel. The art is just so beautiful the way this is rendered. And Cyclops and Jean have officially arrived on Otherworld. And this is it, guys. This is the last hope. Did you hear that, Flink? Last hope. Um, they've come to save their friends and family, and Jean leaps into battle with a bunch of X-Men and yells, to me, my X-Men. And it's a great splash, and we'll talk about who's there when we give our thoughts. And who's not. And who's not there. Annihilation is like, fuck this. Summon it all. Summon all the demons. But in a Hail Mary move, Gene and Cable then go back to the science lab in the sword facility and use the light of Krakoa to unleash the Viscora, which if you remember, those were the black demonic alien demons from earlier in the crossover when Gene, Cyclops, and Kid Cable went to the sword facility. And this Hail Mary really pays off. It's an effective play and it's a backup the Krokoans need. The Viscora rampage into the battlefield and tip the odds in Krokoa's favor. And it gives Apocalypse the opportunity to yank off the Annihilation helmet off of Genesis and, and, and Flink, take it from there! So, because whoever defeats the Golden Helm of Ameth claims the helm, Apocalypse is forced to don it and becomes the new Annihilation. But, after 30 years of Apocalypse stories, we know that he's the strongest, most adaptable mutant there is, and we see him fighting off the Helm's influence while its hordes continue to tear at the fabric of Otherworld. Meanwhile, checking back in with the champions of Araka, we find that Iska the Unbeaten has turned. Turned how? Good question. I'm honestly not sure. All we can see is that she's changed colors from predominantly red and black to predominantly golden red. I guess maybe she's a good guy now. I'm not entirely sure. It's really hard to tell because the panel is vague. Obvious she's holding Pyro, but is she holding him in defense, in defeat? I don't know. We're back to Apocalypse, fighting off the Helm's influence as he surrenders to Saturnine. Thrilled, she promptly jumps on Shogo and uses his magical dragon fire to dispose of the Aminthi Horde. Saturnine then offers Apocalypse one last chance at using the helm for multiversal annihilation, but nah, he's actually feeling pretty chill at the moment. So Saturnine rips off the helm and forges it into a spire that she hands to Genesis. But wait, if you thought that Saturnine was done making up the rules as she goes along, I'm sorry. She's back at it and declares that one mutant from each side must leave their own land and live with the enemy. Genesis claims Apocalypse for Ameth, and he agrees, but not before overriding War General Cyclops and claiming the mutant island of Arako for Krakoa, meaning that the two mutant islands of Okara will be joined once more. So, with that, the X-Men are headed back to Krakoa, Apocalypse is off to Ameth, Jubilee is reunited with her son, Sword is placed back in Earth's orbit, Skybreakers return to Wakanda, and we see that many realms of Otherworld have new status quos that may or may not come back into play at some point in the Hickman era. Who knows? Of course, the big news out of this crossover is that the Captain Britain Corps have been reformed in Betsy's image, but 616 Betsy, our Captain Britain Prime, remains MIA. Thus, Ten of Swords ends with Salty Saturnine on her throne, still thirsty for the one thing she wants but cannot have, Brian Braddock. I just don't, I don't know what the point of this crossover was. I don't think it was a bad ending. And again, like, I, I feel like online when we were talking to some people in the X-Men community, People responded very well to these last few issues. Like to, I would like to know more specifics about what people enjoyed here because I'm not going to say there's there's nothing to enjoy. There have been moments throughout this crossover that have been that have been great from a character perspective, from a you know a story perspective, from an, an action perspective. But overall, it's been kind of a mess and I think most characters have had no real progression like all of our 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 most of our sword bearing champions have had no adjustments whatsoever to their status quo uh it just it it, it seems like it was a lot to do nothing but reestablish the Captain Britain Corps, which could have been handled in Excalibur. This feels like an Excalibur story that got away from everybody. Flink, as always, like I agree with the way you just said it. Like it feels like an Excalibur story. And I don't want to rob Excalibur from the opportunity of birthing a crossover, but I just feel like I don't really 
understand the point of this crossover. And I think I would have enjoyed it a lot more had once we got into the actual fighting, it would have just been straight up brutal fighting, you know, like a fight to the death, you know, do whatever twist he wants. But all these wacky, like twists it took just sort of, I don't know, it, it, it took away from the sense of urgency and, and the stakes for me that when we finally get here towards the end, I'm like, what was that all for again? You know? My main question walking away from this is, as we've established, the main thing was reestablishing the Captain Britain Corps, which essentially has nothing to do with the X-Men or mutants. Captain Britain, historically, Brian Braddock, is not a mutant. Despite the fact the book Excalibur was so strongly associated with mutants and the X-Men, it wasn't about mutants or the X-Men. It was explicitly not about that. All right, all right, all right. Uh, Gene jumping right into battle. I have such strong feels about it. I like that Gene and Cyclops will be leading the X-Men. I mean, I'm assuming that's the insinuation here. So who's here and who's not? Hmm, let me see who all the A-listers are on Krakoa and who the F-listers are. Who is not here, Flank? Hmm. Now, I refuse to acknowledge her as an F-lister. Obviously, I noticed her absence. I'm pissed about it. I think, if anything, our cameo queen deserves at least a cameo. But if we're not going to get one, perhaps it's for the best. You know, she's too busy tending to her successful career to be caught up in this otherworldly and nonsense. I'm okay with Dazzler not being here because maybe Dazzler is more of a, I don't know how I would say it, like client facing uh, X-Man. Like, you know, maybe she's not about going having her in battle. Maybe she's too much of a diplomat. Maybe she's- She's too much of an actual A-lister to risk her life in Otherworld. She's far too important to get scrambled. So- Gwenpool is here and someone mentions because she came to Krakoa in another series. So Wikipedia describes her as a human impersonating a mutant. Oh, okay. Fine. So she can get away with it, but Franklin Richards can't. Got it. Got oh, it. that is. Mm, can't even. Can't even. It's a great splash. We have Emizare, Warpath, Domino, Bishop, Archangel, Dakin, Danny Moonstar, Pyro, Armor, the Cuckoos. That random mutant liberation front guy, not Wild Child. What's his name? Wild Side. Yeah, Look well, at you. You know something about people who aren't Jean Grey. I've, I've been rereading X-Force. <laughs> um, Congrats. Rogue is there. <laughs> I've been reading the original X-Force. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Um, Love that. How are the feet? I don't know. They're non-existent. Rogue, Polaris, Herman's there. Sunfire with a with a Y, right? Am I getting everyone? Gambit. Sunfire with a Y. That Sunfire sister. That's magma. <laughs> That's magma. I mean, yeah, it's got the. the You're right. It is magma. Lines. I thought. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. I was looking at. The, I thought she had a, a mask on. Don't forget, we have our boy Skin, and we have Chamber. Sunpire. Sunpire. I'm sorry. There we go. On a scale of one to ten, what what would you give this crossover? Four. I feel like that's a little generous. That is generous. I'm not going to be as generous. I'm going to give it a two. I don't, and I'm giving it a two not because I thought it was poorly written or because I I thought the art was bad. I just, it was, it was a lot of built up for nothing. I, I feel like we could have gotten an actual better story. And I don't, I don't feel like I made this point earlier when I meant to is, you know, it, this is essentially a Captain Britain story featuring the X-Men. What did the, what did the X-Men get from participating in this crossover exactly? I, uh, Araco, <laughs> that's it. Before this point, completely unknown addition, brother or something to Krakoa. Uh, I don't feel like that is some great victory. They, I guess they saved the world from the multiverse, but as an X-Men story, I don't feel like this served the X-Men all that well, other than to reestablish the X-Men who we didn't know had been de-established to begin with. You know what I mean? Like, it was just kind of weird. Yeah, so, and as this crossover ended, they did announce Reign of X, and we will discuss our feels on that in the next episode. When I think about successful crossovers, I think of things like, here I go, Broken Record, Messiah Complex, which was, again, was a week, the, the first of the week to week uh, X-Men crossovers. And that you were just, 
so You're engaged in- by the story. There were stakes. There was character moments. There was, it was, it really, you were excited to see what came next based on what the issue you just read contained. And I just, this did not have that. You didn't know what to expect issue to issue. There was nothing really drawing me in as a reader. There was not a whole lot of huge character payoffs for the X-Men as a whole. When Cyclops announces that a baby was born with an active X gene and Forge is like, well, now we have two futures that have just opened up and you send Jamie into one future and you know has his clone into another future. The stakes are set so incredibly high and you just don't get that in this crossover. No. You don't get that in Ten of Swords. There's none of that character. Ex- there were good character moments and looking into the characters, but there was no none of this like the stakes are high. We really want these characters to succeed. So that's it. Right. And I and I and I think that the character moments that pay off the most, like Cyclops and Jean Grey reestablishing the X-Men, uh, only work within the context of this series because we didn't know prior to to this series that the X-Men didn't even exist anymore. So yeah. it, it, it it's all very questionable. All right, my friend. One last juicy question about this crossover. Gene and Apocalypse are no longer on the council. Who do we think is going to fill their seats? Well, depending on what happens with Killshaw over in Marauders, I could definitely see him making a play for Apocalypse's spot with Xavier and Magneto and then trying to get Shinobi to fill his spot with the rest of the Hellfire crew in Spring, which, of course, um, you know, he was trying to get Shinobi that spot uh, earlier in the Marauders book, but uh, Kate wound up taking that spot. Um, and then I think we need another iconic classic X-Man to fill Gene's spot uh, with the Summer Crew. Uh, I think maybe Iceman, maybe Rogue. I think it would have to be somebody of that caliber to sit uh, with Nightcrawler and Storm. Um, but I think, you know, my personal dream council member would probably be Monet. Uh, you know, Hickman has repeatedly said that she's a favorite of his. And I would think Emma would fight for it since Monet was one of her students and that uh, you know, that younger than Doug and Kitty, but older than the ex-kids generation, uh, they need some representation on the Quiet Council. And, you know, I feel like she could be, you know, I don't know, maybe the AOC of the Quiet Council or something. Oh, that's interesting. So like a power play going on there with Sebastian Shaw. Yeah, I I can see that. I was thinking who could sit with Xavier and Magneto, and it would have to be someone like Celine or even Neymar, but I don't think Neymar could be on the council because he's not Krakoan and he is strictly Atlantean. So um, my, my guess would be someone of that caliber. I, for me, the obvious choice is Moira X, but we know she's in the shadows and not very visible on Krakoa. Uh, for Gene's seat, I don't disagree about a classic X-Men a la you know, Nightcrawler and Storm. I was thinking maybe... Banshee, but my personal choice, look, I'm going to agree with you. I think M would be perfect for that seat. But all right, unless we have anything else to say on that, I am the Uncanny Dayspring. And I'm the adjective list Linkman. And we'll see you guys next week. 